Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Synapse, a podcast brought to you by Nature Careers in partnership with Nature Neuroscience. I'm Jean Mary Zarate a senior editor at the journal Nature Neuroscience, and in this series, we speak to brain scientists all over the world about their life, their research, their collaborations, and the impact of their work. In episode one, we start with exploratory work being carried out on the neural effects of cannabis and other illicit drugs, and why it's important. My name is Natasha Mason. I am an assistant professor in the Department of Psychopharmacology at Maastricht University. So this is a, yeah, a small, pretty town in the south of the Netherlands. Um, yeah, and I've been living here for, for eight years, uh, doing research and studying the effects of cannabis and also psychedelic drugs on brain and behavior. So psychopharmacology is a study of uh, the effects of drugs on behavior, cognition, and affect or mood. And there's also a subdiscipline of this, which I would also uh, connect with, which is neuropsychopharmacology. So this is similar, but perhaps has more of a focus on the neural mechanisms of drug effects and, and how they alter behavior via understanding how they're working in the brain. So this, this field, I think, is quite interdisciplinary. That's because I think the outcomes can be yeah, used across different fields. So drugs can be used as tools to understand brain function and, and behavior. If you know the mechanism of a drug, if you know the system the drug is working on, you can use it to perturb the system and, and see what happens. So what changes behaviorally or biologically, and then you can say something uh, about the role of that system in that outcome. Um, as well as that, that's more of a fundamental level. Um, there's also a high need, of course, for effective pharmacological treatments for mental health disorders. So a lot of work has been has always been going into this. I don't know if it's growing, uh, but to understand how certain substances interact with the brain and behavior to give rise to therapeutic effects uh, or using drugs again as tools to understand the underlying mechanisms of these disorders. Yeah, so my... In my study area, I'm, I'm interested in which way drugs change brain function uh, and subsequent behavior. 
So this is both acutely when individuals are under the influence of the drug and also in the long term. And here I'm interested in, in both sides of the story, so both the therapeutic effects and the potential negative effects. And when it comes to negative effects, it's how, how we can mitigate them. And here when I say drugs, uh, I'm actually talking about recreationally used drugs or historically recreationally used drugs. So cannabis, the most widely used illicit drug in the world, and also psychedelic drugs, which are, yeah, they have a long history, <laughs> um, but their, their use and, and interest in them is, is also growing. And within these two different drugs, I, I have different in interests, I think. In regards to cannabis, I, I'm interested in the behavioral effects of these substances, also the, the underlying brain mechanisms which give rise to these behavioral effects. But here I've been focusing on tolerance. So we know that when you continue to use cannabis, individuals start displaying tolerance to the effects of the drug. Uh, and I find this really interesting because I think that this can have both positive and negative outcomes. So recreational users tend to use cannabis uh, for the relaxing or the euphoric effects. So here tolerance can be seen as kind of a maladaptive thing uh, in that you have to use more of the drug to get the high that you want and this can go down to, you know, this is where addiction, dependence uh, can come in. Um, but I also think tolerance can be a, a good thing <laughs> in regards to the, the clinical use of this drug. So this drug is now being uh, prescribed or used for more clinical uh, reasons. So pain, for example, and individuals who are using cannabis for pain do not want the high. They do not, because this also comes with the impairment as well. Uh, so the impairment in motor uh, ability or concentration, attention. Um, they just want to be able to go and live day to day, right, without this pain. So here this would be seen as a positive effect. Um, so I'm, in, uh, I'm very interested in understanding the brain mechanisms underlying uh, this, this occurrence of tolerance. So with the more widespread usage of cannabis, both recreationally and chronically, important kind of legal implications arise. So, it, for example, if you are prescribed cannabis daily, um, you have to consistently use the drug for your indication, but you also have to perform day-to-day -day operations, right? Like, like driving to work or the store. Um, currently, let's say you are an individual is clinically using cannabis every day. They drive to the store, they get into an accident. Um, currently, what happens is... Uh, Legal uh, individuals may take a blood sample and say, okay, you have cannabis in your blood, uh, thus you are driving under the influence. Uh, but we know it's not so easy because uh, people develop tolerance, behavioral tolerance to the drug. So although you have a certain level of drug in your, in your body, that doesn't mean that you are behaviorally impaired. So this is really a challenge now uh, from a legal standpoint to 
find uh, a way to actually assess uh, cognitive impairment or motor impairment in users who, who have developed tolerance. So finding a way to measure behavioral tolerance so you know, okay, who was actually impaired by the drug at that point and who was not. Because currently blood <laughs> or what we use with alcohol like a breathalyzer is, 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 is not enough because it doesn't consider these other factors. So in, in my line of work, we're trying to assess two lines of research. These are the acute effects of cannabis on the brain and also the, the long-term effects of cannabis on brain and behavior. So to do this, uh, what we do is we recruit different cannabis-using groups, so individuals who use cannabis once a month, one time a week, or people who use cannabis uh, daily, and we bring them into the lab and we put them in an MRI scanner. So the MRI scanner allows us to look at, at brain function. And while they're laying in the scanner, what we do is actually we uh, vaporize either cannabis or placebo into a balloon <laughs> with kind of a long straw on it, basically. Uh, and we, we give the patient the balloon and the straw and we have them inhale the cannabis or placebo vapor in the scanner. Uh, and then, um, yeah, we start recording. <laughs> we start looking to see how how the brain is is functioning uh, and compare this to the placebo condition. So with this acutely, we're able to see how certain changes in the brain um, relates to feelings of subjective high and also in behavioral impairment, so particularly attention uh, impairments and attention. So with this design, we're able to see the underlying brain changes uh, that relate to how high people feel and how impaired their attention is. And what we found is that um, certain pathways in the reward system are actually implicated in this. And very interestingly, what we do is we also take blood samples to see how much of the concentration of the drug is in blood. And we found that in order for people to feel high or for people to show an impairment in behavior or and also to show this brain response, these concentrations in blood have to surpass a certain threshold. Um, and this is, this is super interesting. This can be quite uh, important. Um, so this, this combination of, of brain behavior and peripheral blood information could be used to inform um, clinicians on how to prescribe a, a, a cannabis as a drug to maximize efficacy of the drug and decrease risk. So if you can prescribe the dose of cannabis to people that induces a therapeutic effect but doesn't surpass this threshold uh, to induce the high or the behavioral effect, you know, then they, they can go about day-to-day -day oper operations without having these kind of side effects in, in that regards. So additionally, uh, we also ran a similar study in individuals who smoke cannabis daily. Here we administered cannabis the same way. And what we see is that individuals had developed tolerance. So they were not uh, experiencing the subjective high of the drug. They were not experiencing the behavioral impairment of the drug. And also we did not see these brain changes. So really making us believe that we found a biomarker of cannabis tolerance. 
Uh, and this can also be very uh, useful. So finding a, a measurable biomarker of tolerance, um, it can be an objective tool to quantify a subjective state. So future research could study at what dose of cannabis and use frequency is necessary to produce this biomarker, to produce tolerance. And this can be used to, uh, again, find a correct dosing regimen for people who, who do not want to experience the, the high or the impairment. Um, so a more clinical use. It can also be useful for recreational users, actually, because when they start developing tolerance, it can get a bit risky. They start using more of the drug. So if you have a biomarker of tolerance, you can, can inform people, uh, you know, how much of the drug can you use before you develop this? So maybe this is the time that you take a tolerance break, right? You stop smoking cannabis for a few days. So this does not develop and you can have a more informed a uh, way to use the drug safely. So I grew up in the United States uh, and I originally went to school to study pharmacy. So I've always been interested in how drugs uh, affect the brain and behavior. And in <laughs> America, when you say that, they say, okay, you should be a pharmacist. So I thought, okay, I will be a pharmacist. Um, so I went and started studying pharmacy and also working in various pharmacies to gain experience. Um, and here, yeah, as well as arguably getting a little bit uh, bored with the job, um, I was also confronted with... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The fact that the, the patients coming in, a lot of the conversations were revolving around complaints about their drugs actually not working. Uh, so here there were particularly two drugs that stuck out. So there drugs for depression and anxiety. Um, people were reporting a lot of side effects uh, that yeah, they just shouldn't have to live with. Um, and then another kind of class of drugs that stuck out were opiates. Not complaining that the drug wasn't work, but you could working, but you could kind of see a deterioration in some people that you know, becoming more dependent on the drug. Um, and I became very unenthused then with this career choice. I, I didn't want to go to school to study <laughs> all of these drugs that actually were not effective, were not good options for people. Um, so during my studies, I started looking into alternative treatment options. And here is where I came across the kind of preliminary uh, research into psychedelic drugs. So my journey started there. Um, and reading that, you know, one administration of a psychedelic drug could induce long-term reduction in symptoms. To me, that was fascinating. Uh, I had never heard about that in my pharmacy classes. And it was also, I felt getting to, trying to, like this was a, a substance, a potential substance that could start to fix the problem versus the substances we had right now, which were just kind of like a Band-Aid just reducing the symptoms, but not actually uh, addressing the underlying problem. 
Um, so I dropped pharmacy completely. Uh, I, I started doing more experimental psychology and also working in neuropsychopharmacology labs. Uh, and after graduation, I just knew I wanted to pursue uh, research into, uh, you know, alternative drugs, psychedelic drugs for uh, in order to try to understand more the therapeutic potential and how um, the mechanisms of this therapeutic potential. Uh, and here I came across uh, a lab in Maastricht University, the lab I am at now, and contacted them and just asked, can I work with you? <laughs> uh, this is quite common in, in the US, I think unpaid interns or <laughs> research assistants or something. I, I was really desperate, I, I would have done that. Um, not allowed in the Netherlands for good reasons. So they said, yeah, come do a master's here and you can do an internship with us. Um, so I, I did the master's so I could do the internship. Uh, did my internship actually on cannabis because that was an ongoing project at the time, which turned into a PhD um, and some psychedelic work as well. And that turned into a postdoc and now an assistant professor position. So um, I'm hanging around as long as possible. It's a very lovely group to work with. Um, and yeah, we're able to do some really interesting experimental studies. So when you ingest cannabis, uh, its main psychoactive component called THC ends, ends up in the brain. And what happens is THC acts like keys throughout the brain unlocking locks that are called receptors. In the case of THC, these are called cannabinoid receptors, which are receptors that are part of the endocannabinoid system in the body. Um, and the, uh, the endocannabinoid system is, is, is always there, <laughs> right? So without consuming cannabis, it works via modulation of, of endocannabinoids. These are naturally occurring neurotransmitters that our body makes. So uh, there are examples like anandamide and, and 2-AG. These are endogenous, so yeah, naturally occurring. And it just so happens that THC is very structurally similar uh, to these naturally occurring endocannabinoids and thus can, can activate all of these receptors. Um, so what happens then? So the endocannabinoid system is involved in a lot of physiological processes. Uh, so appetite, pain, mood, memory, just general activity of, of the nervous system. And THC acts on cannabinoid receptors located throughout the brain. So high densities of these receptors are found in areas that are implicated in motor movements, um, in memory, in attention, in, in, in kind of reward. This is where you get the high from. So, yeah, people notice when you smoke cannabis, you really experience a, a wide range of effects in these because these receptors are implicated in a lot of processes and are located um, throughout the body. So the therapeutic potential for the cannabinoid system, uh, I will say that it's, I think it's largely undiscovered. Um, so the system is involved in, 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 in many processes, so um, appetite, pain, mood, memory, the, you know, activity of the nervous system, maybe some inflammatory processes. But um, from my understanding, uh, yeah, 
we're just beginning to to understand how the system is working and interacting. So because of its involvement in a wide range of processes, the therapeutic potential, you know, to activate the system and and correct these processes when there's impairments, I think it's there. Uh, but I'm not sure how explored it, it currently is, actually. So what has neuroimaging taught us about the effects of cannabinoids on the brain? Uh, and here I would actually say that, that neuroimaging still has so much more <laughs> to teach us. Uh, so due to the, the legal status of this drug, um, a lot of research has been, has been held back. Uh, I would say that we're still very preliminary in our work. Um, a lot of the work has been uh, comparing uh, brain function of, of chronic cannabis users to that of non-using, non-cannabis using controls. Um, assuming that changes in brain function of these chronic users are, are due actually to repeated use of cannabis. Uh, but there are so many other factors here that, that may be involved. So the differences in brain function we see may not be due to cannabis at all, but may be due to uh, you know, underlying lifestyle things. So a lot of work <laughs> needs, to, needs to be done here, assessing the acute effects of cannabis on brain function. And this would allow us to start to understand if there are long-term adverse effects from using the drug repeatedly over time. Uh, adverse effects such as persisting uh, or lasting harm uh, to brain function, um, inductions of psychosis, uh, potential addictive properties, and also drug-drug interactions, for example, uh, commonly used drugs like alcohol, um, and in what populations, also what's, what age, uh, so we know that's a developmental age when you start using cannabis. Uh, depending on the age you start using cannabis, one can assume that this would have uh, alter the impact of that. And then, of course, we could go even further. There's a lot of interest in the therapeutic potential of this drug. So administering cannabis to people with different indications, such as epilepsy, multiple sclerosis, pain, and PTSD or anxiety-related disorders. And seeing what's changing in the brain and if this relates to symptom outcome would um, teach us a lot about how this drug can be used clinically. So uh, it's a call to people to, to start uh, yeah, researching this um, and performing these types of, of studies so we can answer a lot of important and open questions. So, so far I've been trying to understand the, both the acute and the persisting effects of, of cannabis consumption on, on the brain and behavior. Um, and now we're, go we're actually expanding that work and we're going to be comparing it to the acute and persisting effects of synthetic cannabinoids. So we want to see uh, the, the differences in brain activity and behavior between the yeah, kind of normal cannabis and its synthetic counterpart. So we're trying to kind of map and fingerprint different drugs uh, in the brain. So over the next few years, I want to continue my line of work assessing the effects, the acute and persisting effects of cannabis on brain function. 
Um, so, as I said, uh, this drug is one of the most widely used illicit drugs in the world. Thus, I think it's really important to understand the, the neurobehavioral consequences of this use. And if there are, you know, potentially negative consequences of this, how, how we can mitigate these consequences. So, as people are going to continue to use cannabis, um, we, we, we can't stop that. And I'm not saying we should, uh, but we should be putting work and research into understanding how to use the drug responsibly and how to help people do that. Now that's it for this episode of Tales from the Synapse. I'm Jean-Marie Zarate, a senior editor at Nature Neuroscience. The producer was Dom Byrne. Thanks again to Natasha Mason, and thank you for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.